Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. Hey, do me a favor, smash that like button, and then let's get started. A good homicide detective looks at all the people in a victim's inner circle. He or she checks out every person's alibi, and the ones that don't pan out, they jump to the top of the follow-up list. To be a decent true crime sleuth, also requires that you look at all the players and all the angles. A lot of people find the behavior of Debbie Collier's husband, 67-year-old Stephen Allen Collier, on the weekend Debbie disappeared a tad odd. So I did some digging on Steve. He appears to have no criminal history, at least according to the checkmate report I pulled on him. The report also indicates he lived at one point in Florida and that he drives, or at least drove at one time, a 2009 Hyundai Sonata. But why are people finding Steve Collier suspicious? Let's talk about it. First, it's because he's the victim's husband. That would make him the cop's first suspect, too, just by virtue of the relationship. According to Statista.com, of the 87,000 women and girls who were done in in 2017, 50,000 of them were done in by either a partner, an ex-partner, or another family member. So Debbie Collier's inner circle is where we need to look first, and Steve Collier is at the top of the list simply by being married to Debbie. The second reason people are finding Steve Collier a tad sus is because of his 911 call to report Debbie missing. Steve was so quick to provide an alibi for himself for Saturday, September 10th, between the hours of 9 a.m. to 4.30 p.m., even though the officer on the other line never asked him to say where he was and when on the day Debbie disappeared. Steve spit that information out in a way that seemed like he wanted to get it out into the universe from the get-go. Steve also doesn't sound all that alarmed on the call. By the way, I'll play that 911 call at the end of this video so that you can listen to it post-hearing my commentary. Steve Collier's nonchalance could be because he wasn't all that concerned at the time and only realized Debbie was missing through his stepdaughter, Amanda Bearden, who it sounds like was waiting for him at his house when he got home. Note that Amanda only told Steve Collier one sentence from Debbie's cryptic Venmo message if we are to believe what Steve told the officer on the call, and it sounds like she also failed to tell Steve about the large Venmo transfer of $2,385, because Steve doesn't tell the officer about that either. And let me just insert that some people find it weird that the Venmo account that sent the monies and note appears to have been created using Steve Collier's name. Now, this may be because Debbie and Steve had their finances merged, or it could hint at a controlling husband who wants to know everything that goes on financially. Just speculating. We don't know if Steve is a controlling husband. Also, that Venmo amount is so specific, and some have claimed it was the amount of money Debbie's daughter's boyfriend, 
Andrew Geigerich owed in probation dues and fines. Was someone trying to make it look like Amanda and Andrew were behind the Venmo transaction? However, that amount of $2,385 would have been the maximum Andrew could have been charged with, and according to Mike King of Profiling Eva, rarely are the fines charged the maximum amount. So it remains a mystery why that amount was transferred, from which device it was transferred, and if its recipient, Amanda Bearden, has spent any of it. I'm hoping the investigators can figure all that out from Debbie's phone, which was found smashed on the ground near the crime scene. Steve also pauses at one point during the call, and then he tells the officer that he had to control a dog. What's weird about that is we can't hear a dog in the background. Don't dogs normally bark when they need to be controlled? Why is Steve having to restrain the dog? Is it Debbie's dog, the one we see her with in photos? And did the dog witness someone hurting Debbie that day? Was that someone in the home with Steve as he's talking to the officer? I believe animals do have emotions and do show them when they've witnessed horrific scenes. As I recall, O.J. Simpson's wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, had an Aikido named Cato. Yes, the same name as the pool guy who lived on O.J.'s estate. And Cato the dog was in the middle of the road after the crime, barking very loudly. It sounds like the dog was distressed and trying to draw attention to where his mistress, Nicole, and Ron Goldman lay. Maybe Debbie's dog recognized the face or scent of whoever may have forced Debbie on the road trip. That's pure speculation. We don't know if Debbie drove off from her home on Saturday alone or with someone in the back of the rented vehicle. Steve tells the officer that the last time he saw his wife, Debbie, was at 9 p.m. Friday night before he went to bed in a separate room because of his snoring. Steve says he left for work on Saturday morning at 9 a.m. and worked until 4.30 parking cars for the Georgia Bulldogs home game. But we've all heard that Steve actually was done working at 4.06 p.m. Why the discrepancy? Was he just rounding up the number? Or was he trying to make it appear that he got home later than 4.06 p.m.? From what Steve says, it would appear that he never checked in on Debbie in the morning, never popped in her room to say a quick good morning and goodbye before he left for work, as in something like, good morning, honey, I'm off to work, hope you have a good day, I'll see you later. And then Steve never apparently calls or texts Debbie for the entire day, and Debbie apparently never calls or texts him either. Even when my husband and I are busy, we check in on each other and we never leave the house without saying goodbye to one another. Also, does it strike you as odd that Steve said he last saw Debbie at 9 p.m. on Friday and he didn't bother to see if Debbie, who, if she also retired at 9 p.m., would have been asleep for 12 hours by 9 a.m. Saturday morning? I'd seriously be worried if my husband was in another room sleeping and he was in there for 12 hours. 
I'd go in there and I'd be listening to his chest to make sure he was still breathing. Does this lack of checking in on Debbie and lack of sleeping in the same room point to a husband and wife who weren't all that close? Maybe. And when Steve dials 911 around 6 p.m. on Saturday evening to report Debbie missing, he tells the officer that he just got home. The Colliers live 15 minutes from the stadium where Steve was parking cars. If he was done working at 4.06 p.m., he should have been home by 4.30 or so, provided he didn't stop anywhere in between. So where was Steve Collier between 4.06 p.m. and 6 p.m.? It's not a lot of time, but it makes you wonder how he passed those hours, or that hour and a half. I don't think he went grocery shopping because he told the officer that Debbie normally does the food shopping on Saturdays, and that's where he thought she was when he got home and she wasn't there. Could Steve Collier be responsible for what happened to Debbie? Doesn't sound like the police think that. They quickly announced that Steve was captured on surveillance video while working. They didn't say, however, if they saw him throughout the 9 to 4.06 p.m. period, but they seemed to indicate that he had a verified alibi. Despite what the police have said, a lot of people still are considering Steve Collier a potential perpetrator. Let's examine the timeline after Steve Collier was done working. Could Steve have made it to the wooded area near Tallulah Falls where Debbie's remains were found? Could he have committed the crime and made it back to the Collier home by 6 p.m. to dial 911? We know Steve was at his house when he dialed 911 because Amanda said she was there with him. According to Google Maps, it should take about one hour and seven minutes to drive from the Sanford Stadium in Athens, Georgia, where the Georgia Bulldogs play, to that wooded area in Tallulah Falls. So if Steve drove the speed limit, he would have arrived there at Tallulah Falls around 5.13 p.m. How much time would he need to commit the crime? I'm not sure how long the crime took but I could guesstimate at least 15 to 20 minutes, but likely longer. That would take him to 5.30 at the earliest. There's no way Steve Collier could have been back home by 6 p.m. to make the 911 call, unless he had access to a helicopter, which I doubt. Also, where would Debbie have been hanging out between 3.19 p.m. when she drove out of the parking lot and 5 p.m.? Would she have been waiting there in the woods with her rain poncho, torch lighter, blue tarp, paper towels, and red tote bag? And did he know exactly where she'd be when he arrived? Did she come with a picnic basket? Would she want to hang out until 5 p.m. or later if Steve was supposed to drive there for a picnic with her? That sounds pretty far-fetched and ridiculous. Could Steve Collier have hired someone to commit the crime? Yes, that's a possibility, and we know people do this from time to time. But the police said the act was personal and deliberate. To me, that says the person who did Debbie Collier in committed the act himself or herself or themselves and likely relished 
doing it. This crime was filled with rage, and whoever did it wanted to humiliate Debbie. I bet that if the case is solved, which I really hope it is, and soon, we will find out that the person with all the rage is the one who actually did the act. So the question is, who is the person with all the rage? To me, Occam's razor should point us to whoever Debbie had a difficult relationship with. There have been rumors about Debbie cheating. I believe her niece told someone that. If that was the case, that puts a whole different spin on this crime. What's sad, though, is I hate to see Debbie Collier victim-shamed in any way. Can the niece prove those allegations? Does she have concrete evidence? Or is this just a rumor? Debbie's not here to defend herself, and we've seen this type of thing before. Remember how badly Shanann Watts was dragged through the mud? I want to steer clear of that stuff if I can. I think that Debbie was lured to Clayton. I think that's why she drove 70 miles from home and shopped in the family dollar store there. There's no other explanation. She didn't apparently tell Steve she was going to shop 70 miles from home, but of course, wives have secrets. I also think that the perpetrator or perpetrators wanted to commit the crime away from their home turf, where they might be recognized. What's that saying? You don't poop where you work? They also knew about the wooded area, a place where the canopy of trees could hide the crime going down. So they get Debbie all the way up to Clayton, only to have her turn around and head back toward home. Debbie would have passed the area where her remains would later be found on her way to Clayton. She had to turn around after the family dollar store, retrace her route down to Tallulah Falls. That's so odd. If someone was with Debbie in the rental car, why did they have her drive past Tallulah Falls and then have her turn around and go back down toward it? Did Debbie do anything in Clayton before she headed back to home? We know her rental vehicle was parked near the crime scene at 5 p.m. If Debbie did make other stops in Clayton after she left the parking lot of the family dollar store at 3.19 p.m., she had approximately one hour and 40 minutes to hang out before driving her van to the location in Tallulah Falls so that it would be there by 5 p.m. It takes just 14 minutes, by the way, to drive from the family dollar store in Clayton to Tallulah Falls. Let's say Debbie drove straight from the dollar store in Clayton to Tallulah Falls. She would have arrived around 3.34 p.m., and the officer saw the rental vehicle at the crime scene at 5 p.m., that means the perpetrator had at least an hour and a half at that point to carry out the crime. The perp could have already left by five, though, or the perp could have still been there if only the officer would have stopped to check out the unlocked rental vehicle, maybe noticed the unspent bullet cartridge that a news team found there days after the crime, and after the crime scene investigators had carried out their work there. If only. Here's another if only. 
If only we knew why Debbie Collier drove those 70 miles to Clayton. Some have said there may be a connection to the Habitat for Humanity location in Clayton or the one in Clarksville. There are two Habitat for Humanity locations up there. Debbie's daughter, Amanda Bearden, apparently worked at Habitat for Humanity in Maryland while living with her brother, Jeffrey Bearden. So maybe she was able to transfer to one of those Habitat for Humanity locations. Could that be somehow connected to Debbie being near those offices on Saturday? Or was it just that the perpetrator knew about the area from driving up there previously? There's also an addiction recovery center for men in Tallulah Falls called the Victory Home. I've been told that the nonprofit rehab center is pretty much just across the road from where Debbie's remains were found. Is there some connection between that rehab center and Debbie Collier? Okay. Well, I'm going to leave it there for now. I hope this is giving you something to ponder today. I'm going to now play Stephen Collier's 911 call once again so that you can think about what I've said in this video as you listen to that call. Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories.